In 2013, 6D Helmets forever changed the way we think about motorcycle safety helmets. With its patented omnidirectional suspension system to help absorb rotational impacts, the original ATR1 helmet swept through the industry and was received with open arms by riders and racers alike. The new 6D ATR2 and ATR2 Youth are even better than the original and carry a limited three-year warranty and a unique technology that allows the helmet to be rebuilt after most crashes. Visit 6dhelmets.com for more info. Hey, welcome to the Kickstart Podcast presented by 6D Helmets. And today I'm in the 6D headquarters and uh, I'm joined by Bob Weber and Robert Reisinger, who is uh, the two guys are the brains and the brawn behind the brand that has uh, changed the way we all think about motocross helmets. So guys, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for supporting our Swap Moto Live project. And uh, it's, uh, it's awesome to be associated with a company like your guys. Uh, no, thank you, Don. It's it's been fun. It's been fun to watch um, Swap Moto Live develop here over the last number of months too. So, yeah, uh, yeah happy to be here. Okay, so we have uh, we've definitely covered the rise of 6D uh, uh, in written word and and touched on you with videos when we see you here and there. But uh, but let's let's get down to the basic nitty gritty of where you guys came from. So, Bob. Bob was actually a co-worker of mine in my uh, MX Racer Dirt Rider days. You were the yep. publisher. Yeah. Um, before that, you were a, a, a top pro in the New England area. Yeah. And, uh, man, as far as I know, you were... Semi-top. Semi-top, <laughs> but still. So we were at... Uh, <coughs> I remember you, you know, with, with Peterson Publishing. Yeah. Or was it EMAP USA at the time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've also been at White Brothers, Troy Lee, um... And then 60, yeah. so what, am I, what did I miss what, there? What you missed, I, I've got a kind of interesting background, I guess, if you will. Uh, my dad was in the military, and we were stationed in Louisiana. And uh, I don't know, I was 10, 11 years old or whatever. My next-door neighbor was the top enduro guy in the state. His name Cliff Norris, mm -hmm. and a neat guy, and he was just like my first idol, man. I wanted to ride my bicycle like him. I wanted to ride my motorcycle like him. I had a little Honda Z50. And... Um, my dad got stationed to Belgium and mm -hmm. he came home and said, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to Belgium. And, and I'm like, uh, okay, what state is that? I'm not sure where <laughs> that's at. And, uh, so we were off to Europe for three years and, um, that's where I really got hooked into motocross. My older brother, uh, was into dirt bikes. We both had many bikes when we were in Louisiana and we started riding our bicycles to the big Grand Prix and everything, uh, in Europe. We put our bike on the train go to the nearest city, ride our bicycles the rest of the way, watch the GPs and stuff. So I met Pomeroy and uh, Lackey and DeCoster and, uh, you know, Harry Everts at the time and just was a fan, you know. And, mm -hmm. and uh, we came back to the States in 76, moved to Nebraska. And uh, my dad bought me a RM125A model from a Suzuki shop that was going out of business. And so we went riding the first day. Wrote it 20 minutes, it swallowed a reed, lunched the whole motor, <laughs> no. and my dad was ballistic. It Was Was that like, the first bike that you owned, or did you ride in Europe? No, couldn't ride in Europe. Yeah, okay. I rode a, rode a Stingray 20-inch bicycle for three years. Mm -hmm. and, um, but, uh, yeah, that was the beginning of my motocross days. Uh, it was an RM125A model. I raced that thing for three years, and um, two years later, we moved to New England, uh, up to Connecticut, and when as soon as I got there, I started racing. <laughs> And um, advanced pretty quickly through the ranks, became an expert after a year, and spent 10 years racing in New England. Mm -hmm. 
with, you know, JoJo Keller and Doug Henry and John Dowd and Joe Waddington and Jimmy Meenan and just all the bunch of fast guys back in the day in New England. Mm -hmm. And uh, really enjoyed my time there. I spent 10 years at a dealership, a Honda dealership, Manchester Honda. And we were kind of the place in New England for, for motocross. Yeah. You know, we were a really progressive shop and uh, did that. But I, I kind of knew that, um, you know, to get into, you know, to make a career, I knew I, I wasn't going to make it in motocross. Those dreams kind of got parked in the mid-80s and uh, came to realize I was a, you know, fifth through tenth place guy in New England. And, and uh, that wasn't going to cut it for what my early racing goals were. So, mm-hmm. um Put a couple of resumes out to uh, uh, Jim Hale, I think Mitch Payton, and Tom White, and uh, and Tom Tom interviewed me after uh, the Cincinnati one sh- uh, show one year and, mm-hmm. and uh, offered me a job to come be a sales manager. So that's what brought me to California in 1990. That's awesome. Yeah. So White Brothers, Peterson Publishing, Troy Lee, and uh, and back here. Yeah. I started 60. Nice. Okay. So uh, Robert, I. Uh I know you best as the man behind the uh, the San Andreas mountain bike, uh, the yeah. mountain cycle. So, uh, give me the fifty cent version of your your story. Background. Well, uh, yeah, like Bob, um, you know, I was just a, a kid enthusiast growing growing up out of the late '60s and early '70s when motorcycles took off, and uh, um, we arrived in Irvine uh, on our first move um, from San Dimas into Irvine in '71, and it was just wide open spaces. There wasn't a, um, a police department. There wasn't a city. It was still a town, so it was just you know kids riding motorcycles all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I, I became uh, there you um, go. thanks, um, just infatuated with them. I was already in, you know interested in them, but uh, they're around now. And uh, there was a local guy like Bob that was sort of the inspiration. A guy named John Luck, um, who was working at Kawasaki. Um, uh, during my high school years, and mm-hmm. um, he uh, um, got me a deal through his employee program to buy my first uh, motorcycle, it was a KX125, and just been riding used bikes like I was picking up and uh, falling in love with it. The movie on any Sunday came out, so everybody mm-hmm. wanted to, to be a you know, motorcycle racer, and uh, started down that path. Um, did the night racing tour. Uh, actually, I stumbled across the, the first inklings of OCIR motocross track um, that was opening up at the OCIR uh, drag strip and uh, the guy who was promoting it and putting it together drove out we were out there on our motorcycles riding over these dirt mounds that were in the parking lot and mm-hmm. we didn't know what they were there for and uh, he started telling us it was going to be a track and if he wanted to come by and help and get some jobs we could in a few months and so started working there at nights and mm-hmm. uh, that led into to riding the track racing and doing the starting doing the, the night racing uh, tours between OCIR, Ascot, Irwindale, and uh, this, this uh, um, motorcycle mentor of mine, John Luck, uh, said, hey, you need to come out to some day races, and uh, so he dug me, drug me out to a day race, I uh, can't remember what it was, um, but it was like, oh, wow, this is different, and uh, mm-hmm. I really fell in love with it, and that was uh, you know, the start of a racing career, which then led me down the path of uh, um, being really one of the only Kawasaki racers in Southern California, um, there's very few people riding Kawasaki's, and um, I got an, into an R&D test job through uh, this relationship with Kawasaki, um, <coughs> being the only Kawasaki rider, and then going to them and saying, hey, you know, why don't you use me as a test rider, and mm-hmm. uh, advanced up to the local ranks of the local pros. 
And uh, that took me into actually working with your brother, um, Ross, um, mm -hmm. with Kayaba and testing, and uh, spent uh, four, <laughs> four years doing that with them and racing the national circuits and tour and continue to advance. Uh, we got a sport ride through Team Green. Um, and uh, that whole four-year journey was, you know, the big, biggest part of my racing career. Um, and then decided, you know, as I got injured, you know, here and there that uh, I was getting older. I was uh, 23 trying to rationalize, do I keep going forward like Bob or do I, I uh, um, <coughs> do something else? And I decided to go off to school, get an engineering degree, and I uh, uh, went on that, that road. Um, right out of college, I started Mountain Cycle, a uh, bicycle uh, company manufacturing uh, um, what I just called you know, a free ride bike, and you know, before the, the category was really born, it was just about going out and riding and having a bike that handled more like a motorcycle, had decent brakes, um, and that started me on the project of designing a, a bike <coughs> that I needed to design a brake system, water. disc brakes mm -hmm. and um, suspension forks uh, and fully suspended uh, mountain bikes, and uh, during that path of school, I got into aviation, became a pilot, a mechanic, um, flying airplanes, flight instructor, helicopters, and, and it exposed me to a lot of different ways of manufacturing and making things. And so I, I, I geared my bicycle um, designs and manufacturing out, out of those principles, lightweight monocoque structures. Um, and uh, uh, over the course of the years, I went through Mountain Cycle. Um, Fifteen years later, I, I sold that and, and transitioned out. Um, got involved and started up uh, Rocket Exhaust with Don Lieb and a, a few other uh, investors. Worked on that for a year and a half, and uh, we decided to go our, our different ways. Um, and uh, that led me into some other business activities, and then eventually Bob gave me a call. Um, we had met and, and uh, known each other since he had moved out in the 90s um, through bicycle activities and, and riding. And... Um, uh, just being friends and associates and, and periodically uh, chatting about business ideas. And uh, then 6D came along and, and uh, been here ever since. Okay. I got to interject <coughs> something. Yeah. So Robert had a top 100 national number. Ah. But how many guys do you know that had a top 100 national number but didn't even realize what their top placing national number was? He runs 96 because that was what he thought it was. Uh -huh. But after his last year, I think it was, what did you say, 70 or I something? I think it's like? 70, 72 or something like that. I saw a list of there, and, and I left racing to go to school, and yeah. I left. My last number was 96. And uh, then later I saw this printout of the last year, and my number rank had gone down to 72. But you'd never, you'd never run it, right? I never ran it. And it's like, well, that, <coughs> it's never been my number, but that was the, the last rank. So was, that was funny <laughs> thought, to find out. I thought that was pretty funny. I'm like, okay, really? <laughs> yeah. So, hey, so, okay, uh, you know, obviously we're all bicycle nuts here. Let's talk about mountain cycle a little bit. Okay, so that was the... That was the wild west of suspension development era, right? I mean, yeah, you had everything going on then, and your design was radically different than everybody else's, right? Or is this you and Manitou, right, using elastomers? Um, yeah, uh, it was an interesting evolution. I started designing the the bike while I was still in college. Um, and uh, it became real clear to me as I started going to different bicycle shows and trying to dig up information. Um, that there's a few people that were out there playing around with suspension and doing some things and some very uh, interesting uh, predecessors 
that uh, were setting the, the aesthetic direction of the, of the product. Um, but when it came to suspension, when I started first looking at it in uh, about 88, um, there was only a, you know, a few little bits and pieces of, of people you know, playing around with suspension. And then it, uh, RockShock showed up while I was in the design phase and I was trying to do the bike and I realized, hey, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna put on here for suspension fork to know the geometries of the head angle, chassis heights, all the things. And um, so I started designing a fork. Mm -hmm. And when I was going down the ro road of that, I said, well, I wanna do an upside down fork. This is the latest and greatest out of motorcycles. You know, yeah. uh, I should do it this <clears> way. Well, then I started running into problems with upside down forks because you can't have that, that horseshoe over the top, the brace. Mm -hmm. um, you could, but you'd had to have at least real long links and all kinds of crazy things. So I tried a bunch of those and um, started playing with it and started realizing the, the difficulties of designing an upside down fork that didn't have a brace um, and, and how the axles played a major role and how forks, uh, their integrity of steering and stability mm -hmm. and just function was highly incorporated into the axle design. So after about six iterations of designing and failing with forks, I finally got to one that, that was working well, and it was a Lastimer uh, dampened fork that uh, was upside down, and I had tried different crazy mechanisms of having rim brakes, but then I, I finally said, you know, this is just junk. Let me design a disc brake. So I designed mm -hmm. my own disc brake and made prototypes, worked with uh, a NASCAR pad, uh, disc brake pad manufacturer, mm -hmm for about eight months before we finalized a pad that would work on this aluminum rotor that you know nobody braked <laughs> on them. Early into that phase, I ran into some guys, people in the industry, I kept trying to find somebody I could use that was making a pad I could use. Yeah. And they said, uh, came to me and said, about 97% of all brakes break on either steel or cast iron. And that other 3% is where you're at. Nobody yeah. plays in those areas. And if you do, it's really weird because you're trying to break on a, an unusual surface that's mm -hmm. not steel or cast iron. And uh, I was trying to do an aluminum rotor to keep it light. Anyway, I ended up with my own brake pad. I had my own upside down fork and I started mm -hmm. selling the suspenders fork. That was the, the brand, uh, the product name I gave it. And that was in, in advance of doing, finishing the complete frame. And the San Andreas was basically laid out, started using that suspender fork and the disc brake system for it. And in 91, I introduced the, the San Andreas uh, all mountain bike, if you will, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that was based on people's designs. Uh, you know, Brent Trimble had the, the X frame, carbon fiber. It was really awesome looking, simple, very clean lines um, bike. Uh, Richard Cunningham had his flying V, and, and he had the the bolt on sections where he had aluminum front triangle, but he had a bolt on chrome molly rear triangle that elevated chainstays. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there was a like Kestrel Nitro, Nitro, the Kestrel Nitro frame. Um, had an elevated chainstay. So these aesthetic uh, objects that were out there were basically the mixing pot. I took and said, these are, have nice lines, they have some mm -hmm. interesting features, some of them solving the mechanical problems of a, rear, a front derailleur, which was a real pain in the butt in bike designs. Um, and anyway, the San Andreas was born in 91, and uh, it was had two inches of rear travel, two inches of front travel on the suspenders and front and rear disc brakes, and that's mm -hmm. the way it came uh, as a package. and. Uh, you had to build it up from there. Yeah. That was really the catalyst of, of us meeting because I knew a mutual friend, and I'm like, I got to have one of those bikes. I'm like, that thing's cool. I got to get one. So that's, yeah, that's how we ended up connecting originally. You know, it's funny. It's like I talk about, like, that was the Wild West. You know, everybody's mm – -hmm. I distinctly remember seeing the San Andreas. Did you have the back page ad on Mountain Bike Action or something? Man, it's a long time ago. Um, it's possible. Um, yeah, so I, it was on the cover of, actually, the, my forks were on the cover of, I think, the 
uh, was it the 90 or 89 or 90 uh, trade show edition going into Interbike Trade Show. Uh-huh. And uh, it was pretty cool to see. It's like, oh, there it is, you know, and then a nice big article in there um, because I just introduced it to the industry. Jody, you know, I contacted him. I'd, I'd known him for years from racing mm-hmm. and, and uh, Answer Products, the guys there, Scott Boyer and Eddie, um, and trying to look of how to use it. So we're talking to racers, um, uh, actually the racing guys. It was uh, John Parker, a Yeti, oh, yeah. um, who was saying, hey, I got this guy Tomac. And I was like, I don't know who Tomac is. You know, at the time, <laughs> you know, didn't know any of the people. And uh, um, I had one pair of forks that was f- functioning, and, and I had already committed them to another guy. Later, I, I really regretted not yanking them from them, giving yeah, them yeah. to Johnny um, for the Mammoth Downhill. But uh, that was really the launch of it. Manitou was sitting there working on their product. Um, and uh, I had, you know, the suspenders and we were, you know, jockeying around of who was going to do what. And I decided to just grow my own brand yeah. um, instead of license it to uh, um, the different industry inter- interested entities. Um, and uh, went down that path of building mountain cycle based on selling mm-hmm. suspenders, pro stop disc brakes, uh, and the, the monocoque bicycles, which is a San Andreas and the Moho uh, <clears throat> Softail, Moho um, cross country full suspension, road Moho version. We had a BMX. We made uh, over 500 uh, BMX bikes for Haro for their, mm. their monocoque bikes, which they did. A few years previously, and they had a bunch of failures, and then dropped the monocoque. And then they, they later, a few years down the road, started seeing me producing and selling and being successful with them. And they approached me and said, "Hey, we want to do that. It's a really great bike, but you know, we couldn't get it done right." Yeah. And so I became a supplier to them for uh, a couple of years. Um, so yeah, that was the the road of mountain cycle, and it was fun, like you said, the Wild West, because there wasn't much definition, if yeah. any at all, and that was frustrating and good at the same time. But Bikes didn't have standard, you know, uh, axle widths you know, between dropouts. They didn't mm-hmm. have st- necessarily standard ways of doing anything. And anytime you wanted to advance beyond that and say, hey, I need to do a carry-through axle. I need to have something bolt-on here. I can't use this little 5-millimeter quickly skewer as my yeah. tensioning device and have a successful fork work. And so you were always, you know, fighting. I had to keep cantilever brake mounts, you know, on my downhill bikes because, you know, not everybody wanted to right. shift over to discs yeah. and, or, or were sold on the concept. You know, today it's just much better because you're not constrained yeah, by Yeah, things it. are much more standardized these days. But mm-hmm. even so, like you think about a motocross bike, right? The linkage design, there's different styles and theories, but yeah. it's all a shock with a linkage down below yeah still rear suspension system for mountain bikes are still there's like no standardized yeah yeah thought process it's all over the place and it's it's that shift between you know twisting a throttle and having power and um being the human power source yourself and because of that and the amount of mass your body is in comparison to the bicycle itself it changes Mm -hmm. the dynamics of how you have to think about how energy is used. So all of the, the link systems try to cancel out certain body motions and accelerations um, while trying to maintain the suspension still be supple and work where it needs mm-hmm. to work. So it's it's a game. And each bike has its own areas where they tend to work well in mm-hmm. because we're all individuals and we all ride differently. So it's it's not yeah. pick one one design for everybody. It just doesn't work that way. So there, there's reasons for the uniqueness, but it's also confusing because it's endless for whatever reason the bike industry has less barriers to entry and so a lot more people play in it yeah um, than motorcycle which requires you know engines and transmissions yeah. and, and more complicated suspensions and and frames so it's uh um, more more players in there versus the the power sports industry you know there are 
a lot fewer players, even though there's still a lot in that industry. Yeah. Hey, that said, Bob, I think a, a 60 trail bike sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, <laughs> you get a free helmet. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, something like that. We could have, we'll explore it. Yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> so you had a San Andreas back in the day then? Yeah. Yeah. I've had a couple of them over the years, actually. I think um, uh, three. I still have one. I just uh, put one away and actually just recently kind of restored it back to its original. Uh-huh. And, and that bike will stay with me just because I think it's it's an iconic. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's an iconic bicycle and, and it's uh, fun to have in the garage. But, yeah, I've always been a cyclist. I, I got hooked on it in, uh, in really Louisiana. But, you know, those three years in Belgium, that's all I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I love cycling today. It's a, it's a good it's a good out, good way to clear your mind. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, I stumbled upon it just by chance um, on Facebook, and there there's two pages on there. One's Mountain Cycle Fan Club and Club Mountain Cycle. <laughs> totally unbeknownst to me, these organizations grew with all these people that are, that are out in the black market now that Mountain Cycle has dissolved and, and disappeared, um, selling and trading parts back and forth. No <laughs> way, wow. There's a guy in Germany, that, a guy named Jorg, um, that he has a full-blown mountain cycle racing team. You'd think it was <clears throat> supported by the original mountain cycle company. <laughs> Graphics on his van, everything, and it's all retro San Andreas stuff that they're out there racing. So it's uh, pretty bizarre that it's got this whole cult following of of uh, San Andreas and other mountain cycle product owners. But uh, those are, that's San Andreas is the primary one that's kicked around out yeah. there. And we sold so many of them. You know, there's just thousands of them that we were producing. So it was a, a good time through the 90s of doing all that. Cool, cool. Wait, let's take a quick break, uh, but we'll be back to talk about dirt bike helmets after all this bicycle talk. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Out here, on the edge, failure is no option. Here, you don't compromise. Off-road, on-road, on the track, off the grid. Sunstar sprockets and brake discs come installed in more motorcycles and all-terrain vehicles than any other in the world. Period. The engineers who design your bike trust inspect sunstar for the same reason you should because here on the edge failure is no option sunstar number one in sprockets and brake discs welcome back to the kickstart podcast presented by 60 helmets uh once again i'm in the 60 headquarters with uh robert reisinger and bob weber so okay so you're at bob you're at troy lee designs and you're thinking there's got to be a better way to pick protect our riders out there the thing that blows me away is that bob weber former motocross pro sales guy publisher you came up with this idea for the omnidirectional suspension system in your helmet and you look up your old body buddy robert who worked with elastomers before and i mean it sounds like a movie script right like just yeah, maybe a little bit. Was, uh, but, but I mean, well, you know, I mean, I, you've shown me the the prototypes you built yeah. in your garage and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, how did it happen? Yeah, no, it was out of necessity, actually. Um, you know, Scott, uh, Troy and I had been together for about eight and a half years. We did a lot of great things together. We had a lot of fun together. Um, put a race team together. We moved the company into the current building. We expanded our sales, really aggressively developed the business over time. But um, I think Troy and I both were kind of getting at our at the end of our rope of uh, each other. We're, we're quite different people. And um, and that's that's all good. He's an amazing person and, and, a, and a good friend still. 
but our uh, one January after the after the holidays, I was let go, and it was like holy shit, you know, um, uh, a bit of a surprise and a shock. Mm-hmm. You know, we had good things going together there, but you know, it wasn't always perfect either. So I had a decision to make, and uh, my decision was: Do I, you know, go back into the industry and you know just get another job uh, running somebody else's business? I was basically the business manager at TLD, and um, and, uh, or do I try to do something on my own? And that's where, you know, I really started, uh, noodling, um, uh, you know, how could we develop a better helmet? I knew, I knew helmets weren't what they needed to be. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I spent some time just thinking about that process. I knew what I wanted to do, which was uncouple the inner part of the helmet from the outer part of the helmet. Um, cause you know, the awareness I had of angular acceleration and rotational brain injury was, um, the problem I wanted to try to solve. <clears throat> I wasn't really thinking about the low energy component to, to the issue at the time, but I was, I just kept noodling in my mind. Okay. There's, there's something here. Um, I have some experience with, uh, you know, helmet manufacturing from my history with Troy. Actually, mm-hmm. I started, I wrote the business plan for his first, uh, motorcycle helmet he was having some trouble getting that thing completed and asked me to take a look at it but um anyways that uh i was on my road bike actually one morning just uh putting some miles in thinking about the problem and it kind of came to me that you know if we put some dampers between multiple layers of eps and um my original concept had some disc in it more than the hourglass type dampers we used in the original helmet but that's what really got me going, and I, st- I started doing some research of uh, uh, online for patents, what's, uh, what technology, what kind of IP was out there, and I didn't see anything along the lines of what you know I was thinking about. And um, that's when I got in touch with Robert and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? And we hadn't talked too much for a number of years. Robert was off doing other things, and I was busy with Troy, and... And it, uh, we ended up, gosh, I remember the first time we talked on the, on the phone one night where maybe we were on Skype, we were on there for hours just laughing about old shit and, <laughs> you know, old times and, and, and talking about what, you know, I wanted to do and what my idea was. And Robert really had no awareness. His first question was, well, what's wrong with my helmet? You know, he had an old showy and, um, and so I, I ended up sending a bunch of stuff to Robert that I wanted him to read. You know, I just said, hey, study this stuff. This is what I'm thinking. It's what, you know, I think the problem is, and I think this is how we could solve it. I think I answered part of his, his first opening statements with, what, are you crazy? <laughs> you you want to make another helmet, you know, to compete with everything out there? Um, coming out of a product company like Mountain Cycle or yeah. um, trying to push a product in a crowded industry with, with – uh, in the beginning it was fun because we were the only guys making cool stuff for bikes, but uh, um, I didn't see the helmet business that way. It just seemed like a well-entrenched industry, very mature, and it's like, why are you going to go in there and slug it out with, you know, these big companies? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once Bob uh, shared the the vision of the the, t- the problem, and then shared some of the the information that I could follow up and study up on and look at, um, in the the current market condition, as he indicated, I wasn't really paying attention to NFL and what they were talking about and all the concussion stuff. It just you know, I rode motorcycles when I crashed, I crashed, and my helmet looked like it was okay. I'd put it back on and ride mm-hmm. just like any other knucklehead at the time. Um, but as you start, you know, understanding the, the, the helmet's intent, it's kind of like a tire, you know, it wears out, you know, and, and uh, it wears out for different reasons. 
um, sometimes over time, sometimes just from a single impact, and mm -hmm. it's done. Um, but uh, that was, you know, one of my early responses to yeah. him was about, you All know, right. hey, <laughs> you're going to go slug it out with a lot of people. I've been down this road for, you know, 15 years here, and uh, um, that's a brutal trail unless you're prepared for the battle. Um, yeah. And when the... The solution became clear in my mind. Well, I can see how this could help in the in the world of physics and dynamics. Um, how to accomplish it became the next question. How do we do it? And mm -hmm. because of the the years I I developed elastomers for suspension forks for rear shocks, casting my own elastomers, playing with all the geometries of them, I could see how to use those. Plus my just, you know earlier uh, comments about being in aviation. Mm -hmm. um, aviation industry is filled with all kinds of elastomeric damping systems and, and rotor blades for helicopters and instrument panel systems, and they have all these different types of dampers and and really uh, some of the ideas came from that industry of how could I apply that to this with these types of parts that I've made before and mm -hmm. you know you just go down that trail uh, it was a two-year trail yeah yeah it's funny you know I, I I think I've shared this with you before Don but um, you know MIPS was out there at the time and I had awareness of MIPS and nobody had put it in a helmet yet you know yeah they, it was they, only uh, yeah they were like they were sitting at a trade show in a 10 by 10 booth saying, hey, pay attention, helmet pe people. We got this technology we want to put in these helmets, you know, and nobody was signing they on for it. They weren't in a bicycle helmet yet at that point? No, I think they had a ski application with POC that was out in the market in probably 10 or 11, mm -hmm. you know, 11 or 12. I don't remember the exact dates, but there was nothing on the motorcycle side. and, and um, The early tech was complicated, kind of like our... Our system is from a perspective of helmet people because, you know, complicated is saying, well, I'm making more than one single EPS liner. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you take one part and you say, I've got to make, you know, two parts, that's, that's complicated. Yeah. And they got to rub against each other and, and move. And the MIPS original system was uh, a, two, a separated liner, but they didn't have any air gap or any motion. It was all about slip. Mm. And that was a lot more expensive for a manufacturer that was making a helmet to say, hey, let me adopt that because the amount of tooling and changes you would have to go through would be very expensive and a complete rehomologation, which is an expensive process of getting the helmet certified and passing all the tests. And so the early MIPS was more difficult, but they were in this transition of coming up with the current one that everybody's seen, the yellow slip the plane inside, yeah. that's mm -hmm. against your head. Mm -hmm. The early one was, was, wasn't like that. It wasn't against your head. So they've... They came out with this, their second version. That became the popular one, and now they've sort of gone back to their original version, which you'll see you see in a couple of helmets out there. That mm -hmm. is a MIPS spherical, and that's a again, it's a more complicated uh, manufacturing product. But you know, I think I think you know the it took us two years to get our helmet um, developed, tested, certified into the market. And I'll guarantee you there wasn't a day that went by over those two years that I was concerned that somebody was going to beat us to it. Um, so we kept a really tight lip on what we were doing. Um, had people calling me, checking in all the time. Hey, Weber, what are you up to? You know, and actually one of our investors, um, I told him, I said, hey. I'm not telling you, but you know, I'll I'll come show it to you if you're interested, and, and if you're interested in maybe investing in the company because we need some capital to get started, mm -hmm. and um, and that's how he was our first investor. Took it up, showed it to him, laid it all out in front of him. I had these cobbled up uh, prototypes that I mm -hmm. built in the garage, and and he's like, you know what, you're on to something here. I'd, I'd like to get on board and help, you know. So that was pretty special, but. We not we launched it. I think it was November <clears throat> 30th of 2012. 
at the Geico uh, race shop, mm-hmm. and that was a big day. I was nervous as all get out, but we, <laughs> we, we hit the finish line with nobody else showing anything, and um, so that was pretty special. And then we've just, we had all, you know, we, we, we opened everybody's eyes that, okay, here's a better solution. Here's a better mousetrap and it's going to be available in February. And, um, you know, the other manufacturers and brands needed to get bit, uh, get busy and work on, a, mm-hmm. on improving their products. And, you know, it's eight years later now that's, that's happened, you know, and there's, there's other product in the marketplace today. And, um, you know, many have, uh, or a few have taken their own track towards developing something on their own. And then many have just said, okay, well, we'll take that MIPS technology and we'll mm-hmm. insert it in our helmet. It's relatively low cost. And I don't have a lot of engineering to do to make that happen. And I can, I can address the rotation, but what I touched on a little bit ago I wasn't thinking about the low energy bonus that we got out of our design that um, it was something we kind of discovered in testing when we started looking at our helmet in the laboratory and we're seeing how much better we're doing at these, you know, four meter, five meter per second type impact velocities compared to the helmets that we were testing against the current state of the art product in the motocross. Which is interesting because, because while that wasn't on Bob's radar scope, it was clearly defined in the literature that we were both reading that uh, the onset of concussions around 60 Gs to 80 Gs for an adult male. And uh, helmets weren't even anywhere near that area of really doing a lot of protection other than mm-hmm. you know, the blunt trauma and stuff. The energy uh, management of the systems uh, were tuned for the much higher uh, peak G values that you're, you have to stay under. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's one thing that the John Q consumer doesn't understand is the, the testing protocols for helmets it's a pass-fail threshold way up the energy scale. And those energy velocities were set based on uh, cadaver testing mm-hmm. 50 years ago. What's it take to fracture the human skull? Nobody was thinking about the brain. It was, it was skull fracture. Yeah. So we were, we've been building these helmets to prevent skull fracture over all these years. But they were really too stiff to do a lot to protect the brain in lower velocity impacts and such. So, you know, we realized in our testing that we were onto something kind of special here because we were improving the breadth of performance of the technology over a much broader range than what mm-hmm. was out there in the existing helmets uh, at the time. So um, it was exciting to study that. It was exciting to learn about that. You know, we're not doctors. We're not uh, scientists, if you will. We're, you know, kind of mechanically minded people looking for a solution. And, um you know, when we when we got there, we were we were pretty excited when mm-hmm. we were uh, hitting our first helmets in the lab. I I think we took six of them to Terry Smith's lab here in L.A. and prototypes that I hand carved out in the garage. <laughs> man, they were they were you know you spent so much time on them and you're going to go destroy them. <clears throat> you know, it was it was using elastomers that I had in my garage from mountain yeah. cycle days <laughs> that I had bought you know 20 years yeah. earlier as prototype pieces and. Uh, um, we we were literally grinding. Take, yeah, we were grinding the elastomers yeah, down and shaping them. The elastomers <clears throat> that you worked with in mountain bike suspension compressed this way, right? But your hourglass shape allows it to rotate sure. differently, right? So does uh, does the damping properties of an elastomer change in the direction it goes? Is that why you had to? 
uh, kind of like mow out the middle of it to make a shape like hourglass? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, directional motion is everything when it comes to you know damping something. So yeah. in a linear fork, for example, you're sliding up and down telescoping forks, and there's one direction. That's all there is. So the, the any any compressive or spring component you put in there um, is going to deal with that one direction. But the helmet we knew had to absorb energy in, in all directions, and it yeah. was unknown at any given instant what that direction might need to be. So you just need to let it float and find its own direction that it wants to go. And in the development, um, we could see that uh, the compressive loads were part of it, and shearing and buckling was another. And how you design the geometries and the materials that you're using and what they do like to do and don't like to do becomes the question. So you have to work with the material that you're, you're choosing, and... And that's a function of the total product, you know, what kind of material will endure, what we're asking it to do, and take the um, the abuse as well as can we manufacture with that product in a shape and, that we want. Some products you can't mold easily, so you have to accept them in a, some generic shape of slab or sheet. Mm -hmm. Others you can only mold in, in tubular directions, but you can't custom mold them into like our hourglass shape. So um, those are the decisions that have to be made. So, so were you grinding them in the thing? Yeah, the I, in the garage, I was turning dampers on a belt sander and, you yeah. know, just uh, modifying them to the, be the um, the size and dimension we needed. And then we had different durometers of them, and we had all kinds of stuff just from old things he had, or we were down at McMaster Car buying stuff and, you know, modifying that and just, you know, sourcing stuff wherever we could. And it was, it was a fun time, but... Um, you know, I remember when we first went to the lab, we had no idea what to expect. Yeah. And, you know, Terry, Terry yeah, Smith. So did you roll into the lab going, I hope this works. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, here's, I was pulling this out of my wallet, you know, to go <clears throat> spend, you know, $2,500 today to test our helmets with, with Terry and with no clue what to expect. And, um, you know, those were times when we were just, you know, we were driving everything out of my, my personal bank account and yeah. we weren't funded yet. We didn't know if we were going to have a successful product or anything. And so those were particularly trying times, mm -hmm. um, but they were exciting times. And I don't know, we did seven or eight trips over to the factory and, you know, I think Robert's been almost a month over there at one time. And, you know, most of our trips were like two weeks and, you know, we're building helmets. They, they, they wanted to know that our system was going to work. So we kind of had to prove it to the factory that, uh, that our method was good and, and all that was, was positive. And gosh, I remember one time we were over there, we had a meeting coming up and we were trying to put a helmet together and, you know, we were, we had to, this three o'clock appointment and, um, you know, we still didn't have the thing assembled properly. And, <laughs> and we, there were some stressful afternoons over there too, you know, but we got it all done and, and we, you know, we had tried, we're, are we going to put the dampers in through the outside and then cap it? Or, you know, how would you put them in from the inside? How are we going to put the, all these dampers in between this round sphere, you know? Yeah. And, and it took a year of trial and error, just trying to sort out the proper way to mold the EPS liners um, and type of tooling to use, and everybody had ideas and yeah, had to we, go around the circle. We, we had to have a third. We had to have a third mold for the outside EPS because the only way to put it together was expand the outer surface, put all the dampers in, make sure they're aligned in their cup and bonded properly, and then put the top cap on. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we were struggling already because we're going, okay, so we got twice as much tooling as anybody else because we got a two liner system, but now we got to have a third part, you know. Yeah. And, 
so it was it was fun it was interesting and and we got through it and you know the factory was uh helpful they they gave us a little bit of leeway and they gave us a kind of a we had a room up i think we climbed like four stories we had a little room where we were kind of isolated from anything else happening at the factory and we could work up there and i remember they didn't Remember we took our drill over there and we we plugged in some of our own tools and shorted them out and we you know we were like shit what do we do now you know and yeah their voltage system over there is you know the 240 volts and we we run 220 and <laughs> yeah. here and so you you, know, you fry things that you know, if you're not thinking about it and uh, they while they're a huge factory and and massively capable of manufacturing and in mass production and going through that process mm-hmm. prototyping isn't you know wasn't one of their their fortes and they're they've gotten better at it to be sure over the years but it's just uh you know having all the hand tools you normally might have in your garage it's like dude man i need some drills where's your stuff you know (laughs) (laughs) and drill presses you know because asian uh cultures um they do they do a lot of things in the squat position you know and for you know uh at least for me, <laughs> that's an uncomfortable position to work at. You know, yeah. squatting yeah, this down. Big in, yeah, the end mill was on the floor, and we're <laughs> like, that's not going to work. we got to yeah. get this up on the desk. Drill yeah. press. Okay, we're lifting all this stuff up on top of a table so we can stand and work. But yeah, just goofy things. But, but we manage, you know, they manufacture for other uh, brands also. Yeah, how did you choose the manufacturing plant? Well, I, I had a relationship with them prior okay. for, you know, like I mentioned, I had done some work with Troy on his helmets and, and uh, you know, so I had, I had a relationship there that was easy to step into. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, you know, that, that part of it was a little bit easier just because I knew people, you know, and they knew me. And, and so that conversation was a little easier in the beginning. But, um, you know, because they work with multiple other brands, um, you've, they've got to keep things separate, you know, yeah. so they'll have a couple of different rooms where they might have two or three different brands visiting the factory at the same time. Mm. So, you know, like AGV was always, they had a permanent office there and they were always in the next room over and, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to hide what we're doing because the windows are kind of frosted, but you're, you know, you're crossing their path from time to time, you know, or it might be Fox or, you know, TLD or whoever, you know. And um, this manufacturer is very capable. Uh, mm-hmm. They built the best stuff out of uh, China by uh, by far. And um, I just remember trying. You know, we were successful at keeping our stuff out of everybody else's eyesight. And uh, and and we got to the market and we're able to say, you know, okay, this is what we're doing, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll have the helmets here soon. And you know, the whole the whole uh, Geico um, relationship was interesting i i know ziggy from my days back in new england we raced together a little bit back there and i called him and said hey rick you know i've i'm working on this helmet and we've got something that's pretty special i said does you know is there any opportunity to work with with your team in the future and the timing was perfect they had Mm a a contract i think they had signed a one-year deal with showy or something uh and they were they were up and they had had a lot of um, concussion related uh, injuries within the team, and Darren Borcherding over there was very up on what's going on with uh, concussion and helmets, and he was pushing the team already for a better solution. So our timing was perfect there, and um, Rick said, "Listen, go visit Eli." Um, get the helmet on him if Eli likes the helmet then uh, we'll put it in front of the rest of the guys and and uh, and and take a look at it you know mm. 
so we did that. We, Robert and I jumped on a plane and we flew it out, out to Colorado and we spent uh, two days with Eli <clears throat> and we put him in our, in our helmet first thing and, or actually, no, we said, uh, go do a moto in your showy, which he did and, uh, came in and then we put him in our helmet. He went out and did another, uh, 15 minutes probably on the supercross track, uh, came in, had a few comments, liked the fit, liked the ventilation, liked the weight. He said, man, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And, um, he went back out in the show. He did another moto, another session, came back in, back in our helmet. He never took it off the rest of the weekend. Mm -hmm. That evening, we stayed with the Tomax, and we downloaded all of our information and showed them the data that we had, and, and all of that was, uh, you know, influential to them. And um, I think we took off about 2.30 the next afternoon, and, you know, we're on the way to the airport, and Robert and I were feeling pretty good about it. Eli spent the next morning on the motocross track in the back in the helmet, which was just unbelievable to see him on his own track at his, at his place. You know, it was just what an amazing what an amazing time and rider. Yeah. But uh, we were we were in the car on the way back to the airport, and I got a text from Eli and said, hey, I want to wear it at Monster Energy Cup. And I'm like, okay, cool, that's awesome. But, yeah. <laughs> hey, Eli, sorry, you know, we'll we'll have it ready for you for January 1, you know, if, if all went well. And um, so that that was the catalyst to getting in front of Bogle and Will and um, – Zach Oz uh, and Zach Oz, uh, Zach, uh, Zach, Bell. Zach Bell, yeah, and um, and so that meeting went really well, and everybody was on board. We were able to put something together with the team, and that was going to be our our launch pad was Geico Honda, uh, which was awesome for us. Obviously, mm -hmm. the team's amazing. Uh, we won our first race with Eli. We won our first championships, you know, and and all of that. So th those were fantastic times, and. You know, I look back at the graphics today, and I go, "Gosh, we were pretty bad that first year." You know, we we thought they were good at the time, but you know, we we put all our energy into the into really getting the helmet done, and then the the graphic uh, presentation was was probably the you know didn't get the time it deserved, but um, but we got them done, and we got the helmets to market, and and we sold well, and uh, we were well received, and and uh, by the by the industry, and. You know, I look back now, you know, seven, eight years uh, into it, and we've, we've got very loyal customers, and, you know, we've continued to develop the product further on, and, um, you know, we're, we've, we've inspired the market to change, and that's mm -hmm. good for everybody just because helmets are getting better. So, um, you know, looking back, it's a pretty neat time. You know, obviously, we lost Eli to Bell, and, you know, we've lost some other athletes over time to other manufacturers, and... I think that's been the, the hardest time, thing through the whole uh, time is we just haven't had the capital and resources to invest in marketing the way we would like to. And, you know, some of Robert's earlier comments about, well, you know, what do you want to jump into that world for, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Those were things I wasn't thinking about at the time, honestly. I was yeah. thinking about, okay, I think we can build a better mousetrap and, you know, I know we can sell it and I know this industry enough that, you know, I think we can plug into it and, and, uh, and make good. But, you know, I probably didn't spend enough time on the big picture of, okay, you know, we're going to be competing against the, you know, Arise and Showies and Bells of the world. And, um, you know, what's that mean from a marketing perspective and from a brand perspective and from a investment perspective and all of that. So, um, you know, those have been interesting lessons to learn. We've managed to uh, do what we need to do. There's a point where you just have to walk away and say, hey, I, I, 
well, that works for you. That doesn't work for us or that doesn't work for 6D. So we'll just, you know, we'll just take another path. And, um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, that's where we're at today. You know, that's and speaking well of, for us. of Zach Bell, you know, he really yeah. put us on the map with his, you know, famous crash, yeah. you know, which was pretty epic to watch and has been oh. viewed millions of times on YouTube. But, uh, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a, uh, Flipping the script, if you will. You know, we're at the oh, trade yeah. show for the first time, our first trade show with yeah. our helmets in our first year of bringing them into production. And uh, dealers were, ah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I heard, I saw something in, you know, one of the write-ups or the, the online feeds from our, our presentation that we did in November. And uh, um, <laughs> that night, we're, our first night there, we go to the, the big exposition there at the, the hall, watching the vid videos on those big massive screens. And, <laughs> And then we retreat over to one of our investors' house, and, and uh, we're watching it there. And, and just right before our eyes, there goes Zach flying through the air doing a Superman. And yeah. uh, I'm thinking, we're done. You know, this guy, is, he's so high, he's just going to hit the ground and die, you know. <laughs> that yeah. was my thought. Is he going to live, you know. And uh, we started getting texts, as, you I, know, 10 seconds later from yeah. people there saying, Zach's up and walking around. And you're going, oh, Yeah, they, they cut right to commercial. And I'm just, yeah. we're, I think we're both sitting there going, crap you know, we're we're out of business you know and uh and then i got a text from uh one of the team mechanics that hey zach's up on his own feet and under his own power and i'm like okay thank goodness you know and then he came back and raced again and yeah. you know raced forward in his heat race and got a second and or the last chance i guess and got into the program and he had another big crash in the program he tore up two helmets that night which uh <laughs> But he, you know, he was good after both of them, and um, yeah, that was that was pretty, pretty yeah. crazy night to be honest. <clears throat> nice. Well, hey, let's take another quick break, but we'll uh, we'll be back for more. Hey everyone, it's Marvin Miskin from the Red Bull KTM Racing Team. Right now, KTM is making it easier than ever to get out and ride. Head to your local KTM Auto Rise dealer to take advantage of limited time offer on qualified dirt street adventure and naked models or check out ktm.com to learn more today hi this is 250 supercross champion chase sexton of the geico honda team to get the most performance out of your motocross bike make sure you're using the yoshimura exhaust systems visit yosh at yoshimura-rd.com to see their wide line of slip-ons and complete systems for your bike today now enjoy the swap moto live kickstart podcast Okay, welcome back to the Kickstart Podcast presented by 6D Helmets. So the question I have, you know, it, rewinding a bit, you get laid off from Troy Lee, you're wondering, what am I going to do? I've got this idea, right? So I, I was in the same position yeah. earlier this year. Mm -hmm. But unlike you, like I'm producing a media outlet, right? Or like content. It's not really liability and content. What were the... What were the obstacles you had to overcome? And I mean, just producing a helmet in this Sue happy world of ours, right? Mm -hmm. The liability insurance required and, and just you're exposing yourself to so much. Was that a big hurdle for you? No, I, I, I honestly, I probably didn't give it enough thought. I mean, I knew we obviously would have to have product liability insurance. Mm -hmm. I know it's out there and I know it's expensive. So all of that I, I had awareness of, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, we should be able to get a break because I can prove we've got a better performing product. Yeah. Um, that didn't get me too far with the product liability <laughs> underwriters, but yeah. that was in my mind, that's what I was thinking. Um, you know, the, the challenge for me was, um, 
we obviously had to raise capital to get started. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never done that before. Um, I'd always been somewhere where we either had, you know, operating uh, business in place, um, revenues, budgets to support, you know, back in the Peterson days, it's where I was most flush with budget, you know, it was kind of a whole different world for me. I'd never experienced anything like that before. Mm-hmm. But um, we started work. I started reaching out to my network mm-hmm. and saying, hey, I'm, I'm working on this design uh, with Robert. We've, we've formed a, a partnership and uh, we need to raise capital. And this is what we're doing. And um, pretty quickly we got, uh, we had four individuals in our, in our uh group that you know said hey you know they would assist and um and so you know we we brought in um you know our first uh investment and and got busy it basically gave us enough money to get the company rolling Mm -hmm. you know to get through all the tooling development the testing the homologation um, you know, uh, give ourselves a little bit of a salary. Robert was shutting down his business to, uh, come over and do this with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I needed an income. I had two girls. Uh, my first, my oldest was just getting ready to start Cal Poly and, uh, and engineering program. And I'm just like going, okay, let's see, I'm unemployed. I got two girls getting ready to go to college. I've got a mortgage. I live in Southern California and, and, uh, you know, um, I don't have, you know, uh, much to fall back on. I had a little mm-hmm. bit of a nest egg develop, but, uh, you know, not enough to, to start the company on my own accord. So, um, we raised some capital, we got started that got us, um, you know, to, uh, you know, February, March of, of 2013. And we started selling and, um, it was pretty exciting. You know, we, um, moments after Zach Bell's crash, Scott Dennison, our first employee had a text from a dealer, 12 helmets Monday morning. Yeah. And it was just like, (laughs) okay, cool. You know, and, um, I had Scott and, um, Dominic Vandenberg, our first two employees that, um, uh, worked in sales and marketing at the time. And I was selling, I was calling distributors and, you know, trying to line up some distribution around the con- around the globe. And we just, we just put our heads down and did it. Robert mm-hmm. was uh, hard at work on the product and getting the helmets done. Uh, we had to have helmets here for, for a one, uh, which we succeeded in doing. And, uh, we only had size mediums though, at the very beginning. Yeah. I and that. I think two or three of the guys were smalls. So we were comping up our, our mediums with some extra, uh, liners to, you know, get them snug enough so they could wear them. But, um, but anyways, yeah, we got off and running and got selling and we're able to get cash flow going where we could uh, reinvest back into the business and, and keep building. And, um, we did a smaller second round of, uh, funding a couple of years in, um, you know, when we needed some cash, we were trying to develop the bicycle helmet and the, um, youth motocross helmet with those were the next products and we needed some money for tooling and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and inventory. So we brought some additional money into the company at that point through the same four investors. And that's what, that's what we've done it with so far. Um, everything else we've uh, been able to, um, manage out of cash flow within the business um we're now we've got uh, seven or eight products where we've got a street helmet that uh, we've just relaunched with uh, putting the new atr2 style technology into it and mm-hmm. uh, our bicycle products have done well probably not as well as i'd like to see but um uh, again it comes to 
back to the marketing and, and the, you know, uh, push we could put behind the product mm-hmm. from that perspective. But, but that was, you know, probably one of our, our big liabilities up front is how, how do we tell the story? Yeah. How do we mm-hmm. get the message across? You know, why is this different? Um, and why does it make a difference to you? And, uh, you know, that was something we were staring at is how do we communicate this? You know, in the beginning, we really only had, you know, numbers to deal with because we're, we're not doctors, so we can't stand up there and, and you know, predict or preach any type of efficacy to human and tissue and, and you know, the biology of a human. Um, that put, will put us in a liable position and, and in mm-hmm. trouble. Um, so we could only talk about the numbers, and we could clearly talk about that's factual information. You know, this helmet, you know, performs this way, and if we take that helmet and put this, our technology in it, it performs a different way. And that's where we started on the on the yeah. story, which isn't, you know, the easiest message to send to people. I mean, mm-hmm. safety is not necessarily the uh, always the first thing in mind when people go to buy products. It's you know about function or fashion or you know some kind of emotion to to pull mm-hmm. towards it and. Safety is for the people who are in, in dangerous sports and, and accept the, the risks and say, okay, hey, I got to buy, you know, a good pair of boots if I'm going to ride motorcycles. I got to buy, you know, uh, riding pants and you know, elbow pads and, and a helmet, you know. Um, so it comes down to trying to get people to think different about the product. And we had a, a complicated story to try and tell about why this energy makes a difference. And we were the only guys, you know, beating that drum other than MIPS, which really wasn't making any message out there yet. And uh, we started that messaging of... of uh, you know, broad energy management, uh, low threshold energy uh, management, uh, you know, trying to explain these things. And that was, you a, know what, Robert, that reminds me a little bit too. We had another really tall hurdle and that was how heavily entrenched the U S market was into the Snell standard. Mm-hmm. You know, the Snell standards, a voluntary standard here in the United States that has been marketed for the last 40 or 50 years to all of the dealers out there that you got to have a Snell approved helmet it's the best and mm-hmm. you know and for we, us really it was it was a simple decision we either check the box snell certified to have all the homologation done to that standard or not yeah. and you know our our decision uh was rooted in the science of testing the helmets is that if we do the snell standard our helmet will be heavier and it will be stiffer than we want it to be mm-hmm. and everything we've been doing in testing and all our consultations with our, our testing engineers and labs uh individual and people that were there are experts in the industry um uh, we're indicating that no we need to have more compliant surfaces if we're going to do what these medical journals are, are publishing saying need to be done to protect the head we don't want really hard shells we don't we want this stuff to get crushed and damaged we want as much damage in in the biggest impact event as we can get in mm-hmm. the helmet mm-hmm. because all that damage is those crumple zones it's absorbing energy and so uh, you you want to see everything just used it's kind of like a f1 car hitting the wall you know wheels go flying engines go flying everything yeah. leaves the vehicle because you're trying to get down to just the guy in the cockpit yeah because that's the lowest mass, and uh, that redu- produces the least amount of force when it's trying to stop or accelerate. Yeah, that's so frustrating. Even in my position, it must be tenfold for you guys to have people go, crash in the helmet, and it broke. What a piece <laughs> of junk. It's like, God, that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. The helmet broke, and your head's okay. It's like your bar's bending, you know. I mean, yeah. how stiff do you want them? You can, we can make them so they don't bend, but you're not yeah. going to like them because yeah. they're going to be so stiff it's going to rattle your arms like a baseball bat, you know. 
we, keeping we've, that hit. We've had some upset customers over the year, and, and one comes to mind that asked us to meet at, uh, at the Supercross in Anaheim. He bought one for his son. Uh, his son was graduating from a 250 to a 450, brand-new KTM. Uh, cart wheeled it through the whoops and uh, hit his head really hard, got right up. He was fine. Helmet was severely damaged. The bike was severely damaged, wrecked the muffler, uh, fender off, the bars were bent, and all of this. And so he came, and, and we met. He was an, a really neat guy and, and, and nice, but he was concerned because his $750 helmet he had just purchased from his dealer was destroyed. His kid was fine. You know, that was the first question. Well, yeah. how's your son? No, he's fine. He got right up. He's okay. And and so he's telling me about everything that's wrong with the bike, and I, I said, well, is is KTM buying you a new muffler and new handlebars and a new front fender? <laughs> because I can't buy you a new helmet. I'm happy to give you a discount on a replacement, but the helmet did its job. Yeah, your son's okay. This helmet is showing a significant compression and fracture and everything. You know, it's like the, it did some work, and mm-hmm. your son's okay. So. It's a consumable item. And I think even that's where Robert was before. I don't think the market really looked at helmets as consumable items before Mm -hmm. we came around. They said, okay, I'm going to replace my helmet once a year, whether I need it to or not, because it's pretty tattered by then and the liners beat up and, you know, whatever, you know. But um, people needed to change their uh, outlook and their understanding of what the helmet is. And, and that was a big part of our education and our message. And yeah. so not doing the snow was part of that, yeah. <clears throat> that invokes more damage to the helmet. We want the helmet to be more compliant, yeah. more damageable during an impact event. We do not want to see an unfractured shell if you're hitting up in the five you know, plus meters per second. We want to see that shell buckling and, and folding back and cracking. Yeah. We want to see damaged dps because that's the energy process we can make them so it looks pristine and you know we would make them harder the shell's thicker Mm -hmm. and they're more like a cue ball on a pool table now they're going to transfer kinetic energy and that's not what we want Mm -hmm. so for us it was a conscious choice of the best helmet we can produce won't be snell certified and and even though we talked to the snell people and tried to get their their uh not input their um maybe acknowledgement that there's a better way to develop helmets Mm -hmm. And uh, they just weren't really interested in listening back then in the least bit and yeah. fought the entire industry o- on those concepts for a while. I don't know exactly where they sit today, but it was a conscious choice. And now, now as Bob was indicating, we have this liability of going out there and, and saying, hey, we've got this great helmet that's DOT and ECE certified, which are two good standards, especially when they're mixed together because they overlap in areas where each of them have weaknesses. Um, and we're, we're developing a helmet for the motocross racer. So we're mm-hmm. doing our own testing that deals with our ODS technology and things we see that a motocross guy needs because we're riders and we're out there doing the same thing. Yeah. And, um, uh, that was our, our, our position on why our helmet was this way. But it, as Bob was indicating a moment ago, you have to retrain people say, Hey, when you crash, your helmet's going to be yeah. busted up. It's kind of like your tire. You, if it doesn't wear out, it's too hard. You know, yeah. you're not getting the traction you could get otherwise, or, you know, whatever um, metaphor you want to use you know it's totally you know you know what uh the first helmet i recall or the first helmet maker i recall saying snell's too hard for dirt is jt back in the day remember that yeah john gregory the als1 and als2 helmets those were i think those were just dot right yeah dot yeah Yeah, and his theory was it was uh too hard of a shell yeah he was on the right track and uh i've actually uh, had a conversation with greg i ran into him one of the shows, uh, and uh, I've known him for a long time, and we had a real interesting conversation about helmets. He's, yeah. a, he's a neat guy. Yeah. That's a good distinction, you know, for dirt, you know, because yeah. the, 
you know, dirt is, you know, you know, it's all over the place. It can be rocks, it can be sand, it can be mud, it can be clay, you know, and all of them attack and, and affect that impact event differently. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's all, all bets off. And that's where our ODS system really, you know, plays in its uh, um, game well mm-hmm. is because the system can move inside. And so whatever's happening to the outside, the inside's still able to move around and, and root, reduce and scrub off some of that kinetic energy. Yeah. I think the, uh, the problem is that motocross, by and large, is a fashion fickle sport, right? Yeah. And it's like a guy that buys a brand new 450 for 10 grand. Yeah. You know, he spends 280 bucks on custom graphics. Mm-hmm. And then he, uh, you know, well, the, gee, that stock pipe is ugly. <laughs> so he spends, you know, 1200 bucks on a on a titanium full system. And then yeah. just because there's this cheeseball $100 helmet that looks sweet because yeah. it has nice graphics, oh, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I've written it in, in over and over through the years. I've lost advertisers in previous magazines because I won't endorse a cheesy helmet. You know, it's like your your brain's the most important part of your body. Yeah. Invest the money to protect your brain, right? Yeah. I mean, like, for instance, like two, three months ago, I got knocked out and I took a trip to the hospital and Guess what my copay was? I had to sell a bicycle to pay for it. You know, uh, yep, you know, yep. I got a I got a uh, twenty eight hundred dollar copay on the wow. on the CAT scan and stuff. So, yep. yeah, I you know, what, well, what if that was what if that was a result of me wearing a hundred dollar helmet? Yeah, you know, there was no net savings there. You know, and, and the brain doesn't heal well. You yeah. know, that's the other half of that coin. It needs time, and it needs uh, you know, it needs it needs a, a softer and quieter and mellower environment to just recover from a concussion or mm-hmm. severe concussion. And um, you know, unfortunately, we're still not at the place where we can give anybody a guarantee. You know, yeah. um, I let the I let the Red Bull Straight Rhythm people know that you guys really need to think about this track when you're building it because you're going to kill somebody. And uh, that was after RJ's crash at straight rhythm five years ago, I think it was by now. And if you watch that video and study those images, it is, um, he's a very fortunate young man and he had a severe concussion and, you know, took quite a bit of time off the motorcycle. And I think rode what, uh, East coast that next year, um, by the time he got, you know, fully back up to speed and, and you know, uh, took the appropriate time off. But uh, studying that helmet and studying that crash um, really told an incredible story. And we could see the actual displacement of our two liners mm-hmm. uh, and how they worked to his benefit in that accident. And you just don't know what it might have been had he been in something else. Um, but... I know our, our helmet saved his life that day, mm-hmm. and he actually had us on the phone with a doctor from the Mayo Clinic. He went he went to the best of the best, and we had some conversations about that, and his doctors uh, supported the fact that, you know, he was fortunate he was in the product he was in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my, my first statement was, unfortunately, we can't guarantee somebody, you know, there's... We still don't have that helmet that's going to protect from every foreseeable uh, impact and injury. You know, uh, Weston Pikes is another example where he got something in the open face. He just mm-hmm. has a goggle there. And so, you know, there's there's parts of the 
face that are still unprotected. We had a mini bike rider that got a clutch lever in the forehead Ooh. in a in a crash, and it went through the goggle and fractured his skull right above his eye socket. And thankfully, he was okay. But the helmet didn't come into play. Yeah, you know, it was it was uh, it was an impact through the goggle. So um, motocross and off road riding is dangerous. Mm. Um, Robert and I are both stewards of the sport. Um, I said early on, I want this sport to be around for a long time. I personally believe it's the best sport in the world from mm. a perspective of challenging the athlete and, you know, what it teaches you if you, if you grow up in this world and you have to, uh, you know, pay for, uh, this sport at some level and you have to learn to compete against other riders in the track and prepare your equipment and prepare your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really a fantastic sport, but it's got a risk that goes with it. So our goal is to protect that and mitigate that risk as much as possible. And I believe we've done a good job with that, with our, with our products. And we continue to push ourselves, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, when you're never done. And, you know, one of our investors, he made a comment to us very early on. He goes, you guys are going to look back at your first designs, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, down the road a ways and, you know, you're going to go, gosh, look where we started and, and look where we're at today. And, and I think our ATR2 is a real good example of that because, you know, we, we took on some of the, uh, manufacturing challenges that we saw in the first generation helmet and solve those in the new one and you know worked also to improve the performance and and how you know how it was uh, 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 how free it was to do its work in rotation and mm -hmm. such so mm -hmm. anyways interesting stuff I don't mean to ramble but <laughs> <laughs> hey out of curiosity so proportionately do you guys sell more mini helmets youth helmets and small sizes because here's the thing is like like i'm saying like the, the the dumb guys that buy expensive bike expensive pipe and a cheap helmet that looks cool yeah i think when you're a parent trying to protect your kid you take things a little more seriously and you think about it more because i mean at the swap motor race series there's a large large number of atr ones and you know youth helmets yeah, out there yeah. in the peewee and 65 classes you know when you see kids that are racing that are buying their stuff before they're good enough to get sponsored and have to wear other things yeah it's always like the helmet of choice yeah no um we we sell more adult helmets you do. um we do sell a high percentage of small sizes uh and we do very well with our youth helmet the youth market has really kind of uh, uh adopted us if you will and and appreciated us and that's been good um, but you know, the overall picture is the adult helmets, uh, for sure outsell the, uh, the youth sizes, but, um, it is a good market for us. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's kind of cool, you know, I just got some results back from the, uh, rookies cup over in France and, um, uh, just auditing the, uh, the helmets over there. And, you know, we were 15% of the athletes at the French, you know, rookies cup, which is kind of the Loretta lens of France. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty good number, you know, considering that, you know, all of the European brands were in, oh, uh, yeah. were in the single digits and we were the second largest brand there. Um, and, uh, you know, considering where we've come in the last, um, you know, seven or eight years of sales, um, you know, it's pretty exciting to see that. And, you know, when we go to Loretta's, we've got about 22, 23% of the kids there. So, wow, um, that's yeah, it's, that's great. It's, it's nice. We did, we audit every class at, at both of those two events just to try to get an answer of, you know, where we're at and compared to the market. So, you know, those are exciting numbers and everything. Um, 
there's a lot of 60s that around the you know around the country and 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 our customer is more the racer than not you know the the guy that might be going to glamis and you know uh riding and you know out there or you know trail riding is maybe a little less likely to be our guy mm-hmm. unless he's that guy you were talking about earlier that's you know got to go to work on monday and he's a professional and you know he's he's more concerned about his safety than what you know maybe my kit looks like you know mm-hmm. um we've pushed ourselves really hard to be current with our designs and have the proper colorways and try to have something for everybody uh with what we offer you know and 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 we're doing that a lot better now than we did in the very beginning and um you know so we've kind of settled into a um you know a, a path and a process that is is you know works for us and you know we can keep the product line current and, and going so yeah cool hey let's take another quick break but uh i'd like to keep going Okay. You guys good? Yeah, we're good. I'm good. Riders like Justin Cooper, Don Ferrandis, Eli Tomac, Adam Entingnap, Josh Hansen, and more partner with Works Chassis Lab for engine mounts and other special parts to add comfort to and enhance the handling characteristics of their bikes. With championships and race wins to prove it, Works Chassis Lab parts provides the winning edge. Visit WorksChassisLab.com for more information. Welcome back to the 60 Helmets Kickstart Podcast. And uh, once again, I'm here at the 60 offices with Bob and Robert. So uh, we were talking about youth helmets and stuff. And uh, a few years ago at our race series, I was sitting there watching the uh, the peewee class. And I'm like, God, look at all those kids out there. Look, at, There's so many parents and everything out there. And I'm talking with our race director, Craig Davis. And he's like, wow, I got this idea about this race. <laughs> just for kids and so we developed the idea and we we launched you know the mini major which is now i think in its fourth or fifth year but uh um that event is awesome to see how many kids there are riding and racing out there and uh you know i know we've got the uh new mini major coming up november 7th through 10th this year and uh you guys are part of it and we're giving away a very special 60 yep. helmet there and one of the peewee classes i believe right yeah it's uh yeah it's painted up by tagger designs with the event theme which is based around that oh so trendy teal color you know so yeah um i've seen drawings of it and i can't wait to see it because i know tagger does a great yeah, job i'm anxious to see it too next week but uh but yeah so i mean the youth market though is where you need to capture these yeah. riders i think and get them loyal to the product and we yeah. Can, yeah, we can see some of that too, Don. We were uh, just studying some of the um, numbers at Loretta's. We can see in those uh, uh, schoolboy and 250 classes, we're seeing a little higher percentage of our of riders in 60s in there, mm-hmm. which was kind of nice, nice to see. You know, we're seeing some of that stuff, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that's some of our guys that are have graduated up over the yeah. years, and now they're riding in those classes where they were on 50s and 65s yeah. before. It's got to be f- so frustrating for both of you guys to have – people move out of the helmet because of a team deal or something you know you know like like there's there's a point when you know they they kind of have no choice right yeah but uh, at the at the pro level it's hard because you know the guys are coming up they need to earn a living Um, part of professional racing is the endorsement side of uh, whatever deals they can put together And, you know, like I shared earlier, that's just harder for us. Everything, you know, we're doing as a company, you know, when you think about Showy or Rye or Bell or pick any of them, really, they've got a whole 
brand that's been established for many, many years, mm-hmm. selling in every category of the sport. And we started with a single motocross helmet, you know, and everything we made, every penny we made on that helmet and then some uh, went back in to get the youth helmet done and then yeah. to, you know, get the um, the BMX helmet done, the d- downhill version of the uh, derivative of the first helmet. Um, so everything's kind of constantly gone back in and we just haven't been able to say, okay, we're, we're going to peel this much money out to, you know, endorse this rider or whatever. So, you know, we hang out a little bit at the, you know, end of the year, let everything kind of settle and see what's left and go, okay, you know, that, um, you know, we could do this. You know, Mm -hmm. we certainly know we have to do our part in that for any successful program, obviously, you know, needs resources and stuff. We understand that as much as everybody, but it's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard when you've got to do that with um, a company as young as we are and with the resources we have. So um, it does hurt, you know, Um, you know, I, I, I had hoped to have Eli in our helmet through his whole career. Mm -hmm. That was my thinking in the beginning, you know, and it just wasn't a reality. It's, um, you know, um, so it is what it is. I've learned to not let it um, bother me too much. You know, it's like, (laughs) okay, you know, if the customer out there that is buying and paying for their 60, has a good experience with that product and trusts us and comes back and buys a second or a third or whatever, as they continue uh, down the path of racing, that's where we've done our job. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I was just thinking while you were talking, I was remember the, uh, the first, uh, the first helmet you gave me, I was riding at Glen Helen and you, you hand delivered it to me. Yeah. I don't remember exactly, well, but I'm, and I, I crap down on the, uh, the Bud's Creek section of the track. Uh huh. <laughs> I think I do. Blam! Landed on my face, broke the visor That's off. That's right. I, I texted you, "Hey, I need a new visor." <laughs> yep. I, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's awesome to think that you guys have come as far as you have in the short amount of time. What has it been seven years? Yeah, we've been selling for seven. We started uh, in the beginning of thirteen, so uh, selling product. But yeah, mm-hmm. two years developing. So the ATR two. Um, I think it's it's an awesome looking helmet. You know the shell, Thanks. the evolution of the shell design is, is just perfect because, yep. and the, the graphics. You know you're still using Dale Davis, right? Yep. yep yeah, yep. Dale Davis has come a long way from that first set of graphics. Yep. <laughs> um, well, yeah. and, and you know, in all fairness to Dale, it was a community too on those. You know, yeah. we we selected some graphics that we. Yeah, I mean, he drew them all, but we all chose them. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that was all of us. I, you know, we can't put that all on Dale. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I, you know what? I really like the one uh, that incorporates the logo as a large part of the design element. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the been two, real. The two-tone helmet, that's good. Yeah, it's been real popular. That's Have you doing. thought about, like, I know, so we're working with Tagger mm-hmm. on this mini major helmet to give away. Mm-hmm. Um, have you thought about doing a signature helmet for, like, an artist like Tagger? Because, I mean... We, yeah. I know that his helmets at, with some of the other companies are among the best selling. Yeah, no, he's actually interested in that. And we, we said it's probably time to start talking about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, we just did the collaboration with FXR. So mm-hmm. that's the first one yeah, we've done. I, I've got yeah. the black and white one. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, they did a they did a nice job on their graphics. And uh, it was exciting to deliver those uh, in August to them. And they're, I just talked to them the other day. They're selling well. They're really excited. Um, but you know, it was, it allowed us to improve our, our distribution into Canada, Mm -hmm. um, which we have a warehouse up there and we have a sales rep up there and stuff, but we're just,
just not, you know, we're not talking to the dealers every day. And, you know, it just allowed us to um, expand, you know, uh, Bell's got a couple of collaborations out there that I think are smart business for them. And um, not every dealer out there deals with us, you know, when it, when they uh, open an account with 60, the accounting department's got to open it up. And it's just, you know, it's just one more account for them, you know, yeah. they're like, okay, well, aren't you, don't you have distribution in the U.S.? Well, no, we're direct to dealer, you know, yeah. and, so anyways, I, there was just a lot of merit uh, in, in partnering up with FXR. Um, their gear is exceptional. I mm. think they do a really, really nice job with the product. And, you know, the team up there is excellent. So, you know, that was our first collaboration there. And then we need to, you know, we're, uh, TAG's expressed some interest in that. And uh, we're going to explore that opportunity also. And uh, um, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah. yeah. You know, the thing I like about the FXR graphic is that, you know, again, like I said, I like the helmet you have where your 60 logo is a big part of the design element. Yeah. So they maintain the big 60 and yeah. they combine their FXR and it doesn't look too confusing, like conflicting, you know. It, yeah, I, I think they did, a, they did a good job. It fits really close with the designs of their gear and just kind of the way they, you know, they, they put their company out there. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. So ATR2. One of the most exciting things about that helmet is that it's rebuildable. Yep. So how many have you rebuilt since you debuted that, that technology? You know, I don't know what that exact number is today, but um, what I can tell you is it's less than we anticipated. Really? And yeah, we're so as far as rebuilding, it mm -hmm. is replacing the innermost... Uh, yeah, EPS liner, right? Yeah, so so if a if a guy has a big crash out there, um, he should inspect his helmet visually himself. If he sees any shell damage, then obviously the helmet is needs to be retired like any other helmet. If the shell looks good, he can contact us, <clears throat> send the helmet in. We can take it apart and study everything the shell better for one to confirm that it'll be okay, and then two, if everything's good, it's a 20 25 minute process to pull that inner eps out of it disassemble the helmet put the new one in and put it back together and uh and graphically and visually he may not have a brand new helmet because it might have scratches and you know rock pitting or whatever on it mm -hmm. but from a safety perspective it's ideal it's as mm -hmm. good as new What's been exciting or interesting on the ATR2 is we're seeing the EPP, which is the outer layer and the design we have in there, doing a um, higher percentage of the low energy work. Mm -hmm. So the EPS is yielding when it's much further up the scale. And so we're not, you know, it's a pretty, it's a moderate to severe crash where the EPS is starting to come into play. Mm -hmm. So I think we're doing less as a ratio than we were as ATR1s. But, um, you know, it's still a nice service, man. I, the people that go through that process for 125 bucks, yeah. they're back up and running with a brand new helmet. And uh, they're very appreciative. Okay, so you just mentioned ATR1. Was that rebuildable? You know, it wasn't. Uh, it, it wasn't intended to be, but we rebuilt them. And we found early on, you know, the helmet was expensive. And that's been the hardest thing for us to overcome. Mm -hmm. You know, we got a lot of pushback on the price. Well, the helmet's manufactured in you China. Want me to, I can give you a copy of my, my uh, CT scan bill. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I'd you, love You could just send that to people. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and many people get it, and especially if they've been through that process. But um, we decided early on that, you know, we could get some spare internal liners here mm 
mm-hmm. and um, rebuild or all, it's really remanufacture the helmet yeah. um, with the exception of yeah, the We have to gut shell. it and tear yeah. it all apart because it was never assembled to be disassembled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the HR2 is designed to be disassembled. So mm-hmm. there's fasteners we can unscrew, pull out the chin bar, cheek pad system, and then mm-hmm. we exposes us to the four connecting snaps that keep the EPS and the ATR2. HR1 is built just like any other helmet. It's all put together. There's adhesives in it, and we have to break those bonds and, and the, the sometimes breaking the chin bar parts because mm-hmm. they're bonded in. And uh, So we have a lot more work to do to get them there. But uh, the one big, you know, great thing that's come out of it that, again, it's serendipitous. It wasn't really planned. Is that We wanted to solve the, the cost of the helmet yeah. and rebuilding it. And people, hey, I just got my new helmet, and I'm out there, you know, two weeks later, and I wad up, and I destroyed an expensive helmet. Yeah. And it's like, that's what started us down. Well, can we rebuild these? And so we looked into the legal issues and all that stuff and the physical issues. And yeah, we can. We started doing it. And uh, it's been in play from early on. But the great part is that it's bringing helmets back to us to study. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so out of that, we've had hundreds and hundreds of helmets come back that we've yeah. rebuilt and processed. But we get to examine them. We get to see where they're getting damaged, how they're getting damaged. Um, uh, and you know, different types of crash events. We have a, we have a, a rebuild um, form that, that the, who's taking the call is supposed to ask certain questions and get mm-hmm. as much information about the crash as they can. So it's really helped us refine the helmet um, technology and the, the quality and, and features of the helmet as we've seen yep. different damages. And some of them are, are totally, they're not sending them in for us to inspect for possible rebuild. They're just smashed and done. But people know that we, we do that and they, yeah. they'll offer to send it in. Yeah. And some of them are, are just brutally hammered. And it's nice to see, you know, how or something's got a, there's a you know coin from an actual bolt that came in and popped a section of the fiberglass just right out of the helmet, you know, in mm. a certain area. And you're yeah. just going, okay, get, people are getting struck in these areas too. And, yeah. and so it's- Have you had a bloody helmet come back? Yeah, yeah, we've had yeah, some. Yeah, I've had a couple. Um, trying to think of the one that the um, the young man at uh, at the Comp Edge area qualifier for. Um, yeah, that, he was a, he Loretta's. was an unfortunate crash yeah. in a triple step up, and he doubled it and got landed on at, at the point of the triple when he was oh, rolling yeah. over it. Yeah. And so he got an engine case to the top of his head, so or not engine case, but the fr- frame rail to the top yeah. of his head because we could clearly see the frame rail where it hit the the helmet and yeah. cracked it and smashed mm-hmm. it. But then he got his face shoved into the, the bar perch, yeah. and uh, so was, that came through and yeah, bolts. The, no, yeah, the goggle lens. Remember the goggle lens? Yeah, the goggle lens sliced, sliced, sliced them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. pinch bolts on the handlebar perch yeah. popped him in the head and cracked his skull. Yeah. You know how all that got through the goggle. You know, face opening is is amazing, but it did. Yeah. And then he still had to crash and hit the ground. So all that yeah. was before he uh-huh. ended up doing his final crash, which was hitting the ground. Which uh, it was a messed up helmet, but watching and seeing and tearing it apart and looking at how how all the system worked and mm-hmm. and did the work in there and, and what crushed is all of that stuff has been educational for us. So, yeah. um, you know, we don't tell people if you damaged it, just buy a new one. We, we hey, send it back. We'd love to see it. We'll yeah. look at yeah. it, and it's good for us. And uh, if we can rebuild it, it helps them. Okay, so you guys, since of coming out, you've changed the way everybody thinks about it. Helmets, right? All the manufacturers, save for one that I can think of, have either adopted MIPS or tried to develop something of their own. So you're obviously not the only game in town anymore. Um, Are you actively brainstorming, researching, trying to come up with the next evolution of your helmet, the ATR3, if you would? Yeah, I mean, we, we, <laughs> he never stops. we never stop in you know, yeah. looking at, you know, how can we make 
improve manufacturing to bring the cost down. We were able to come from 750 down to the 600 range in cost-saving uh, methodologies by design. Um, we're always looking at how do we get the technology to do more. Mm -hmm. And part of that's being limited to the manufacturing uh, methodologies within an industry you're working in because um, all of that affects the cost. You know, we have to work within uh, a reasonable you know, manufacturing uh, methodology. The others are materials and, and dynamics and everything we can learn about, you know, a better way to protect uh, the human brain. But, you know, it never ends. Um, and we're, we're constantly iterating through small design changes that uh, aren't, um, you know, transparent for everybody to see, but we're always enhancing, you know, features of the helmets as we move through any iteration um, that we know is going to improve something. Mm -hmm. So it is endless for us. So... How long till the ATR three? <laughs> I think it, um, that's a ways down. We just got that helmet in the marketplace last year, and yeah. you know, a little bit over a year out from now, year and a half or so. Um, so we've got some time with these molds, and to you know, continue with this helmet. There's a couple things we'll probably do to this helmet as a you know, yeah, in between, right? you know, kind Different of tune-up thing. Yeah, something we. I think the. You know, mid-run ATR one update you did was yeah. fantastic. The, yeah, that that the helped new, a lot. The new visor. Yeah, very good. Yeah, no, that that definitely we 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 heard our fair share of comments about the visor on the first one, but uh, you know it'll it'll get some some small tweaks and and adjustments as we go forward. But you know the technology inside right now is really doing good work, and and we're quite happy with that. And and uh, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, straying a little bit from Moto, let's talk about the NFL grant mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a little bit. How, how, how is that coming along? Um, it's good. That program's over, um, and and I think most people are aware. We tried to make as much noise about it as we could, uh -huh. you know, because we, we won the whole thing overall. And, um, and, and for anybody that isn't aware, there was um, a design challenge offered by the NFL out to the mm -hmm. um, engineering community of – uh, looking for a better energy management material and uh, was not necessarily for helmets, but of course everybody knew it was for helmets. Um, we entered into that um, challenge with another 124 other uh, companies of uh, uh, either helmeted or engineering companies. They selected five, actually they selected 20 that they uh, allowed to submit a more advanced proposal on their material. We were one of those 20. And of that 20, they selected five for a $250,000 grant. Mm -hmm. And now we were in a competition for uh, a, a half a million dollar award as a grand prize winner. Um, so we competed over the course of probably about a year and a half because it ran long uh, with four other entities um, for uh, developing our material solution, which was obviously ODS. Mm -hmm. uh, and really part of what's in the ATR2 uh, came from this. And we won the thing overall uh, in partnership with our lab tester, uh, our lab testing partner, uh, Dynamic Research, um, Terry Smith and, and uh, um over there and so that was exciting obviously to win the thing was huge news it, it very much validated our system uh, to a different community and uh, that's been good for us we've uh, we have some other opportunities in other communities for our technology that uh, that we're working on today and um, we've got a, basically a uh, well-protected 
uh, from an IP standpoint, uh, method of managing energy inside of a helmet, which we've called omnidirectional suspension. Mm -hmm. And that method, the way we've hosted it between the two layers, allows us to do some things that others, uh, and provide some benefits, maybe is a better way to say this, that other methods can't provide or won't be able to match and provide. And therein lies the key to the success of the ODS system is how, um, it, how modular it can be, how tunable it can be, and how we can um, effectively build an inner helmet within another helmet, but uncoupled so they can displace in three dimensions and do their work. And yeah, that uh, the NFL thing was huge for us. Mm -hmm. um, they just now have announced a new challenge and there are some meetings coming up in November um, that we'll, we'll attend and uh, see what they're, what they're looking at, uh, at. They did have a head health tech program uh, after the head health challenge. And uh, we put, uh, it was really, you know, it was really kind of too small of a, of a program to, uh, for us to get uh, involved in and spend much time on because it wasn't going to um, help us develop ODS any further mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to help us uh, make a football helmet. So uh, we've been kind of away from the NFL project for a couple of years with the exception of what, uh, you know, the, the uh, liner system that we're mm -hmm. working on right now. So, Okay. Uh, I guess last question I have, is this uh, pending China tariff going to affect your business at all? Unfortunately, yes, in a big way, and it's and it's hard. I've I've uh, written my Congress people. I've uh, put a letter into the president and uh, been involved and tried to get on board with any of the other um, committees that are addressing this from a, a business standpoint. But um, attaching 15% duty on the cost of our goods is a painful. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, situation for us. We mm -hmm. don't have 15% to give up. It just restricts what we can do from a company. Um, we don't believe we can effectively raise the price of our product. We've been fighting heavily to get the price down and, um, that's difficult. Uh, obviously we have staff that we need to pay. We have overhead like anybody else, marketing mm -hmm. expenses, all of that makes the world go round. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a big challenge. And, and while I probably somewhat naive, um, feel that maybe they'll come down or off at some point in the future, uh, for those that don't know, helmets have traditionally been exempt from, uh, tariffs because there's nobody in the U S making helmets and nobody in the U S capable of making these mm -hmm. products. Our helmets would be 2000, $2,500 probably if we had to make them in the United States. Um, so uh, historically, the government has been um, uh, acknowledged that and allowed mm -hmm. um, safety goods like that to come in without a duty. But um, to go from zero to 15 percent, and it's actually 30 percent on the advisors and liners and stuff, uh, is is painful and 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 business plan dynamics changing. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to respond to that in a way without raising our prices. In in my hope and. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. It's yeah. difficult. We're not we're not big enough to be able to absorb it and go, you know, because it's hundreds of thousands of dollars at this stage of game just in duties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sucks. <laughs> well, um, guys, 
it was awesome sitting here and chatting with you and getting to ask all my curious questions and hearing the backstories. And uh, so uh, let's see, November 7th through 10th, if you're a parent or if you're a mini bike ripper, come by the mini major at State Fair MX. Yeah. Stop in, see the guys at the 6D booth, check out the uh, new youth helmet. And uh, again, we're going to give away a really cool helmet to a winner in the uh, 50cc classes. And uh, as soon as we get it back from Tagger, we'll be putting it on the website and our social media. Hopefully it motivates a whole bunch of guys to come out. Cool. So yeah. thanks, guys. And uh, again, uh, 60helmets.com. Check it out. Give it some serious thought. Don't buy a cheese ball helmet after you spend a grand on a pipe. Thanks right. for listening. Don, thank you. <laughs>